Y'all did great. I love both of those songs. Um, If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, and uh, we'll read verses 19 and 20 here in just a moment. Uh, That's uh, in the Minor Prophets, Hosea. Uh, And if you'll make the effort to turn there, I know that's not a book that we uh, look at just a great deal uh, in lessons. Uh, But if you'll make the effort to turn there, I think the entire lesson except for one time uh, will be in the book of Hosea or on the screen. We'll turn to one other passage right at the end of the lesson. Uh, But if you'll turn to Hosea chapter 2, we'll read verses 19 and 20 together here in just a moment. Uh, Have you ever seen these uh, pictures of people who are older now, uh, of them at their wedding? Uh, Maybe it's even you go to somebody's house, and this is something I do. Uh, I always try and find an excuse to wonder if I'm at somebody's house for any period of time. Uh, I love looking at the pictures, and I especially love when I run across uh, a picture of somebody at their wedding, or maybe it's their adult children at their wedding, Um, and it is such a snapshot of a moment in time. Uh, and I think about I think about those couples. I think about them then in that moment with everything that's before them, and then a lot of times I think about them now and where they are in their relationship now or in their lives now. And usually I think about um, the change that's taken place, and it's for the better. Uh, occasionally it's for the worse, uh, but it's almost always very different who they are then versus who they are now. A few weeks ago, my mother posted on social media this picture. Uh, That's my dad and my mom uh, at their wedding. Um, And uh, I didn't know that couple. Uh, Well, I've known them all of my life, haven't I? But I didn't know that couple specifically. Um, But they look happy, right? Uh, That guy looks like me a little bit. And then here is a picture of them from the end of last year. then versus now. Uh, They're different, better in many ways, uh, but different. Uh, Here's another example, um, another bride and groom. Uh, That's Stephanie and I at our wedding. Uh, We spent hundreds of dollars on a professional photographer, and my favorite picture of the two of us from our wedding Uh, is this picture that my late grandmother took on a disposable camera, and then you had to take a picture with your digital camera of this uh, print-off of of this picture. Uh, And and part of the reason why this is my favorite is because that professional photographer that we paid hundreds of dollars to took one picture of Stephanie and I, uh, of just us, just the two of us. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures taken, one picture of the bride and groom. And so this is my favorite. Uh, And then that is us now. And it's funny, uh, I was looking for a good picture to put up here that kind of matched this picture. And I came to realize how few pictures Stephanie take of just the two of us all dressed up on some occasion. And so I had to find this picture with Anna and Ian Hancock are actually over there and I had to cut them out. And I don't know what I'm doing with my hand. It's like I'm holding a pen or something in this picture. Um, There's a lot of difference there, maybe not and look, be nice. Uh, but there's a lot of difference between those two couples, and, and they look so happy, uh, so wonderfully naive, right, uh, about what's going to happen and what's coming next and all of the joys and all of the difficulties. And so we see this picture of then and now. Two pictures, but a lot of learning in between. We get those same kind of pictures of God's bride, 
his chosen people in the Old and New Testaments, then and now. And what is the picture in the Old Testament? Well, the picture of God and his bride then is summarized well here in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19, these are the vows that God made to his bride, the children of Israel. I betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We studied Hosea in the Bible class hour just a little bit ago, but this is really the beginning and end of the story of Hosea. A husband and a wife, Homer or Gomer and Hosea, God and his people. A story to which basically all of us can relate on some level, even if we have not been married. These verses, specifically in verses 19 and 20, hold personal fondness to me because these were the vows at my wedding. Um, I don't actually remember saying them, but I remember being excited to say them. Uh, And everyone likes a good love story. And this story of God and his people could have been so good. I mean, what better vows are there to be found than these vows that God makes to his bride? But the rebellion and unfaithfulness of the people kept this from being so in the days of Hosea. And Hosea becomes a tragic love story long before the days of Shakespeare. Which brings us to God's bride now. And the image of the people of God being his bride is used heavenly in the New Testament. And the image of, is of Christ and his church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, for example, uses very similar terminology to what we've read in Hosea. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ." And of course, we're familiar with other passages in the New Testament like Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 that describe the church as the bride of Christ. And if we look in the New Testament, Hosea, for its length, is, is one of the most quoted books in the, the prophets. But I believe that it is this metaphor that we should take with us from this book first and foremost. We are the bride of Christ. We are God's bride. So what is the message to the people of Israel in the time of Hosea, to his bride then, and what is it that we should take from it now? How might we be a faithful, holy wife to our God? Well, let's go back to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1, and we're going to read this whole chapter Uh, Just 11 verses, we'll actually read that down through chapter 2 and verse 1. And this is the story before we get to uh, chapter 2 and those wonderful verses in verses 19 and 20 in the betrothal. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, which means God will scatter or God will sow. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in the day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God's going to scatter them and it's going to take place in this, in this place, Jezreel, which means God will scatter or God will sow. But that's not all. Verse 6. And she conceived again and bore him a daughter. And God said to him, Call her name Lorama, which means no mercy. How would you like that to be your name? I mean, I know not everybody likes their name, but this is my daughter, no mercy. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor battle, by horses or horsemen. Uh, there's a contrast there, the faithful and the unfaithful. God is the one doing the saving. Then we get to verse 8, and the third child. Now when she had weaned Lo-Rama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Loami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet. The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, remember? There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel, the day of sowing. Say to your brethren, my people, Ami, and to your sisters, mercy is shown, Rama. And so we see this picture of God, but it is through the person of Hosea and his marriage to this woman named Gomer. This chapter describes an adulteress who became a harlot, and she didn't have to be that. She didn't start out that way, but that's what she became. And it is a picture of God's people, a marriage with an unfaithful spouse. So that was the bride then. What can the bride now learn from that? Well, notice three points of application from this book this morning. What can we learn from then? Well, number one, we should see ongoing, unrepentant sin as unfaithfulness. Not like we use it in the un, in the sanitized way sometimes. And I know, you know, there's a euphemistic sort of way of doing that. You know, we've got lots of little ears and all those things, and now those little ears are listening really closely. So we want to be, you know, sanitized in the way we talk about it. But, but sometimes we talk about an unfaithful Christian. Think about that term. Think about what that means. What does that mean? That means someone who is cheating on God. They're unfaithful. And we need to see what sin, any sin, does to God. How it hurts God. How it pains God for us to be in sin despite all that He has done for us, despite the commitment and covenant He has made with us as His people. And if we get nothing else out of the book of Hosea, let this lesson be learned. God loves us, and He loves us dearly. But we need to see what our sin and rebellion does to our God. We need to see our sin as He sees it and be willing to repent. You know, I think a lot of times we think to ourselves that we can't hurt God's feelings. 
You know, a lot of times that's the way we are with the people we love the most. I know I was like that with my dad for years and years and years. I would just tell my dad whatever I was thinking, and sometimes I could be mean and pretty hurtful, and it wasn't until I got older and had children of my own that I realized, oh, wait, my dad has feelings too, you know, and I need to be careful about that. But I think sometimes we look at God and all of his power and might and majesty, that he is God of gods, Lord of lords, that he is everywhere and knows all things, and he has all power and might and dominion, and we say, well, how could I hurt a God like that? And you know what this passage tells us? It hurts God deeply and personally when we sin against him. And if we don't see our sin this way, The reality is we will never fully appreciate God's grace and what he has done for us even when we were in sin. The clearest way to see the power of grace is to clearly see the problem of sin. And some people, and I know preachers say some people and it's just like a straw man. I'm talking about some real, actual, live people say we need to stop making people feel guilty all the time and tell them about God's grace. But here's the problem with that. People can't know God's grace unless they feel guilty. Unless we first see what our sins have done. Unless it tears our heart out what we've done to God. Uh, I have a preacher friend who works with college students quite a bit uh, in another state. And we were talking about this idea of, of God's grace and our guilt and you know what the proper ratio of those things is in some ways. And, and he was telling me about a particular young man who was in the college group where he preaches. And this young man kept coming back to him over and over for this friend of mine to explain to him the concept of grace. And so he would. He explained that concept over and over. And still the young man came back with the same questions that he had already answered. And he was patient with this young man. He kept going back to the scriptures, showing him again, showing him in a different way. But it finally hit him what the problem was. And by this point, he had invested a lot in this young man. They had become very close. And so he felt like he could be really honest and upfront with him. And over the phone, this is what he told me that he told him. I figured out why you keep coming back to me about this. You want me to tell you that God's grace means you don't have to try to stop sinning or feel bad when you do sin. But that's not the way this works. Grace is not permission to sin. It is provision for sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Old King James says, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I've been unfaithful to my spouse, God, in my sin. That's what I've done to God when I turn my back on him, when I choose a life devoted to pursuing the flesh, though I've known him and come into a right relationship with him. When I know what's right and I know what God would have me to do, and I don't care, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what it does to God. That is the spiritual adultery that is described in James chapter 1 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
And this same concept is brought up over and over in Hosea, not just through the the living picture of Hosea and his wife and his children, but it's brought up in other images as well. For example, if you turn to Hosea chapter 8, Hosea chapter 8. Let's read verses 7 through 10 together. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now, that's a truism across the Bible, the idea of you reap what you sow. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that, but the idea, the general principle is you reap what you sow, and generally, you reap much more than what you have sown. So they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. So what were they sowing? The stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which uh, is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria, like a wild donkey alone by itself. Now, I've been told, I don't read Hebrew, but I've been told that that's a pun in Hebrew, uh, because wild donkey and uh, Ephraim sound the same. They sound like the same thing. That's what you are, Ephraim. You're just so stubborn, like a wild donkey. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though, they have hired among the nations. Now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. So what had they sown? Well, they had gone after these foreign alliances with other nations, and they thought these other nations, like Egypt or even Assyria in times past, they thought these nations were going to save them. That's what they sowed. Now what did they reap? Well, they reaped Assyria, one of these nations they thought were going to save them, ended up being the cause of their destruction. Assyria was what took them off into captivity. And he describes them in very vivid terms here as a hired lover. They have hired among the nations. Well, my question is, who are our hired lovers? Who is it that we go to expecting these things to save us instead of God? Is it riches? Or pleasure? Or entertainment and distraction? Is it power or fleeting beauty? Perhaps political affiliation or anti-political affiliation? Maybe it's self. Maybe it's worldly wisdom and education. Maybe it's substance use and and abuse. But whatever it is, whether it's inherently sinful or not, if we are pursuing that thing instead of or ahead of God, that's the thing. That's the lover. That's the one whom we are being unfaithful with against God. And we see this theme of reaping and sowing that's picked up again in chapter 10 in verses 12 through 15. In calling them to repent, repent the same way. Sow for yourselves righteousness. And what are you going to reap? Mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. But the problem was, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalaman plundered Beth, That's probably Shalmaneser V of Assyria. Beth Arbel in the day of battle, 
A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. That's the brutality of the Assyrians. That's the way they would conquer their people. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off entirely. This is what they were going to sow because what they were going to reap because of what they had sown. And judgment was severe. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid a spiritual Assyria? How do we avoid the permanent captivity in the fires of hell? What do you think you have to do? Work that much harder? Do that much more? I had a long conversation with a brother in Christ who's very close to me about faithful Christians who fear that they haven't done enough, that they won't be good enough to go to heaven. This is bold, and I know it's personal, but I'm curious. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but I am curious. Who worries about that? You're not going to be good enough to go to heaven. Just last week, out in the portico, a brother asked me, if the confidence that he feels in his salvation at the thought of dying, he asked me, is that right? Should I have that kind of confidence? My answer was yes. And I tell you, if you worry about not being good enough, I have news for you. You're not good enough. So you're never going to feel good enough based on your own works and merit. If you think I'm waiting for that day where I've done enough, I've worked enough, I've given up enough, where I can feel good about my salvation because I've earned it and I deserve to go to heaven, that day will never come. And if it does come, it probably indicates self-righteousness and pride. The reality, the bad news is, you've already blown it in the past. And you can't be good enough to win God back. You've already sown iniquity. And so if salvation is going to occur, God is the one who has to save you. And He wants to save you. And so the second thing that we can learn from then, from the wife of God then, is that we should see God's grace as buying us back in love. What happens? What does God have Hosea do for Gomer? We'll go to Hosea chapter 3, uh, a very short chapter, just five verses. Let's read Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 together. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to me, that is to Hosea, the husband, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Hosea continues to love Gomer, no matter how morally reprehensible she has become, he still loves her. Who look to other gods, this is the, uh, what, what is equated to that, and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Uh, if we understand right from Exodus chapter 21, that's roughly equivalent to 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a wounded slave in Exodus 21. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You, you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man so too I will be toward you. Just be faithful to me, 
and I'll be faithful to you. She is restored, but she still has to now do what's right. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim, all of these things that are associated with the temple and their relationship with God. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days." I want you to imagine that for a moment. I I know it's not pleasant, but imagine for a moment that your spouse is unfaithful and even bears children of the unfaithfulness. I think that's the implication in chapter 1 and verse 9. The name of the child is not my people. I think it's likely that that was a child that was found in adultery. And yet, you still love them. And you choose to buy them back out of this harlotry, prostitution, How incredibly painful that must have been. But what kind of love would it take to do that? This is why God asked or told Hosea to do this, so that we and he could get a picture of how God feels and what God is willing to do to redeem us. And that's why I and us all should be so grateful that God in his grace doesn't just accept me back He brings me back. He buys me back at a high price at the blood of his son. Gomer is brought back in chapter 3 at the rough equivalent of 30 pieces of silver, roughly what Christ was sold for by Judas. And we think about the price that was paid for us. It is the price of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 23, you were bought at a price. How much? What was the price to buy us? 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Your price, the price God paid to buy you back in love that, that cannot be assigned a physical value is the precious blood of of Jesus Christ. And so we should see ongoing unrepentant sin as unfaithfulness, and we should see God's grace as this buying us back in love despite what we've done to God. And so that means there's nothing for us to do? Of course not. That's that's the third thing that we should learn from this book, that we should be motivated toward total devotion to our spouse because of what he's done and what he's willing to do. Um, We know this to be true. You know this even if you're not married, but especially if you're married, you know this, right? Telling our spouse we love them, I love you, doesn't make it true. Um, I'm much more expressive with my love than Stephanie is. Um, That's the way I was raised. You know, I want to tell people, if I love somebody, I want to tell them. Told a bunch of y'all that I love you. Uh, It's awkward for you. It wasn't awkward for me. I want to tell you. And I remember the first time, you remember this with your spouse, the first time I told Stephanie I loved her. Uh, I just kind of fell out, you know. I love you. And there was a long, long pause. And she very softly and very sweetly said back, Thank you. 
Because if she was going to tell me she loved me, she, she had to know that, yes, I really do love you. And she did, thankfully, eventually say that she loved me too. But just saying that, just saying you love somebody doesn't make it true. And we can say it until we're blue in the face. I love you, I love you, I love you. But without the action and devotion to go with it, it's not really true, right? Well, by the same measure, crying out, my God, we know you, doesn't make it true either. Go to Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1, if you would. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1. Set the trumpet to your mouth. Um, Hosea is spreading this to everybody. Everybody needs to hear this. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Just crying this out, my God, we know you, doesn't make that true. What does? Well, we see something very similar in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, don't we? In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? But here's the passage that I said I was going to have you turn to. Maybe mark your spot in Hosea. We're going to come back to Hosea one more time. But before we do, turn to Matthew chapter 7. So the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. I want you to read this for yourself. We're going to read verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Jesus comes. He's introducing his kingdom. This is the great Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you want to be a citizen of my kingdom. Uh, to put it in terms that we find later in the New Testament, you want to be my bride? You want to be my spouse? This is what that looks like. And toward the very end of this lesson, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in that day, which is usually referring to the final judgment day, which I believe that's what it's referring to here. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They had done things for God. I see no reason to doubt that they hadn't really tried to do these things in the name of God. They had done things for God. The problem was that they were not doing the things He wanted them to do. They were not doing His will. Verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You have chosen to practice something other than what I've asked you to do. I've made my will clear, I've made my will plain, and you chose willingly to do something else. Don't come to me and say, well, I did all of these other things too. You knew, you knew what I wanted, and you chose not to do it. Does that sound like I'm preaching to all those people out there? If we know God's will, and we've been blessed to know God's will. If we've been blessed to come into a relationship with Him, then we need to seek to do that will. 
as best we can. Go back to Hosea just one more time. Hosea chapter 8. This is actually a quotation from another prophet, but this idea of to obey is better than sacrifice, that idea is found in Hosea as well in several places. Just notice if we're still in chapter 8, Hosea chapter 8 and verse 11. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. I gave them my law, I told them what I wanted to do, and they're like, well, that's weird, I don't want to do that. Do we ever have that attitude toward God and his word? For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Yeah, they're making sacrifices to God, you know, they're coming to church. But the Lord is not accepting them because they're not doing his will. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. They will return to captivity. To obey is better than sacrifice. And the issue with these people specifically in the days of Jeroboam II, the issue was not that they didn't worship God at all. They did. They worshiped God in the form of a golden calf. They worshiped God on a number of different altars throughout their nation. It's very clear that they worshiped Yahweh. They worshiped God. But Yahweh had become just another God to these people. If I might say, he had become to them just another idol. You know, we've got Baal, we've got the Asherahs, and we've got Jehovah too. You know, he's another good one. Worship him too if you want to. They had all of these things. And on top of that, they also had Jehovah God. And the people of Israel were trying to find any God they could worship that might give them some sort of edge or favor in this life. But that's not the way it works with Yahweh. That's not the way it works with our God. Uh, we live in an age where uh, non-exclusive relationships are uh, becoming more and more popular. You know, that you have a number of different people that you have a relationship and are intimate with. God requires total monogamy from a spiritual perspective. God has to be everything to us, first and only. That same brother I talked about earlier asked me, well, well, how much of our part is required? And you know what my response to him was? 100%. We must give ourselves totally to God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It's not that we can earn it or that we have earned it, but we must give ourselves first to God because we are grateful and devoted. And maybe this is where, maybe this is where this image of a marriage is really, really helpful to us. Raise your hand if you are a perfect spouse. Monty, no. So aside from Monty, none of the rest of us are perfect spouses. But are you a faithful spouse? Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've never left clothes on the floor. Maybe you've never burned dinner. Maybe you've never forgotten that thing you were supposed to pick up at the store on the way home after you said, of course I remember. Maybe you've never said something hateful. 
Maybe you've never done something selfish and harmful. Maybe you're not like me. But if you've done those things, does that mean that you've been unfaithful? Of course not. And you do your best to make it right, to apologize, to confess, to repent. And your spouse forgives you and you move forward. And so too with God. I've messed up before, I'm going to mess up again. But I must be faithful. I don't deserve the chance that I've been given. I cannot earn it by how good I'm going to be. But out of gratitude, I am willing to try to be the best version of myself because I love God. And I appreciate so much what He has done for me. And I do those things that I do not in pride and self righteousness, but in gratitude and in hope. And I have confidence. I have confidence in my salvation. I have confidence that I'm going to go to heaven someday. But it is not confidence in myself and my own perfection. It is confidence in my God and His faithfulness and the puny faithfulness I'm trying to show in return. And may we all learn well the lesson from Israel in the days of Hosea. From the then to the now. That we don't have to be perfect, but we have to be devoted. We have to be faithful. And may we learn the lesson that God wants to save us. He has bought us back through the blood of His Son. He is proposing to us, but wants to to betroth us to Himself. But we have to answer His offer of salvation by humble submission to His will. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, um, most of this lesson is looking forward to you when you have that relationship with God. And God wants to have that relationship with you through His Son, through Jesus Christ. Won't you put Christ on in baptism and be saved by the blood of the Lamb? But, as is normally the case, most of this lesson is for those of us who are already Christians. And maybe we have been unfaithful to God. You can make it right. And God has made provision for you to come back into that right relationship with Him. And maybe you're already a Christian and you you don't have confidence in your salvation because you've been relying on yourself, thinking you're going to earn it by your own works. God wants you to have that confidence because of the relationship you have with Him. And He has given you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for you and pray with you. And if we can do that even this morning, come now. Why do we stand and while we sing?